Good morning. Pray with me before we go to God's Word. Dear Father, as we look again upon your judgment against the ungrateful heart of Judah, we ask you to change our assessment of our own sin against our redeeming God so that we will understand the magnitude both of our sin and of your grace. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. For us who have been made the people of God, God's assignment to us to live godly lives is at its very essence a call to loving, grateful obedience. And that loving, grateful obedience comes only when we rightly assess three things. Who God is, what we deserve from Him, and the magnitude of His grace toward us. Who God is, what we deserve from Him, and the magnitude of His grace toward us. When we fail to rightly assess or value any of those three things, God faithfully works to correct our accounting, <laughs> our reckoning. All three of those, of those lessons are on the table every time God works in us to, to correct us as his people. Who God is, what we deserve from him, and the magnitude of his grace toward us. It is the second of those lessons that is most in focus in this final chapter of Jeremiah, what we deserve from our holy God. But all three points are on the table here. Before we look into this chapter, chapter I'd like to uh, first consider why it's here, <laughs> why this passage is where it is in the book of Jeremiah. And the reason I want to do that is because at first glance, it looks like it's out of place. Back in chapter 39, Jeremiah already told of Nebuchadnezzar's successful 18-month siege of the city of Jerusalem in the 11th year of King Zedekiah, just as this last chapter does. He already told us in chapter 39 of the tearing down of the city walls and the destruction of the city, just as this chapter does. He already told of the slaying of the city's officials and nobles, and the blinding and exile of King Zedekiah, just as this chapter does. After detailing those events, Jeremiah went on to tell us about what happened to the Judahites who survived the fall of Jerusalem, how they continued to rebel against God's crystal clear instruction by refusing to, to remain in Judah under Nebuchadnezzar's authority, and they instead fled to Egypt for protection and provision. And Jeremiah told us of God's judgment against Egypt at the hands of the same Nebuchadnezzar, and of God's judgments against many nations. All of those things filled the chapters from, from chapter 39 to 51. So why, after all of that, does the book of Jeremiah rewind 
and replay the siege and destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple in Jerusalem here in this concluding chapter of the book. Well, I believe the placement of this chapter is supposed to get our attention. The last sentence of the preceding chapter, chapter 51, says, Thus far are the words of Jeremiah. In other words, this is where the words of Jeremiah end. And that means that chapter 52 was placed in the scroll of the book of Jeremiah by someone other than Jeremiah. And I strongly suspect that that someone was Jeremiah's trusted scribe, Baruch. God gets to do stuff like that because it's not the writers of the Bible that God says he inspired. It's the words of the Bible that he inspired, or much more accurately, that he breathed out. And you find that in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, and in 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21. This final chapter of Jeremiah is almost word for word the same as what we find in the concluding episode of 2 Kings, the book of 2 Kings, the episode that begins in 2 Kings verse chapter 24, verse 18. I suspect that both of these passages were written by the hand of Baruch. Baruch didn't need to borrow from someone else's account of the fall of the city of Jerusalem because he had been there. He saw it firsthand. I believe he simply wrote what he witnessed with the precision and eye for detail that one would expect of a scribe. As for the placement of this chapter at this point, it makes perfect sense to me that Baruch would hold his own recounting of the fall of the city until after he had finished writing down the words of God that were given to him through Jeremiah. But I believe there's more to the location of this chapter than, than just that. I, I believe the writer, whether it was Baruch or someone else, wanted Judah and every generation of God's people from his day forward to finish this book with this one event firmly in mind. And the event that he sets before us was the culminating judgment of God in the Old Testament against his own people. And that's the destruction of the city of the great king, King David, and the, and, and the destruction of the dwelling place of Yahweh in the midst of his people, the temple in Jerusalem. God has been clear since the beginning of this book that his judgments against Judah were for correction, not for destruction. He has said that repeatedly. The writer in this chapter I believe, wanted to make sure that the culmination of that corrective judgment of God against his own people was never forgotten. In chapter 10, verse 24, Jeremiah cried out to God, saying, on behalf of all of Judah, correct me, O Lord, but with justice, not with your anger, or you will bring me to nothing. Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not know you, and on the families that do not call your name, for they have devoured Jacob. They have devoured him and consumed him and have laid waste his, his habitation. 
In chapter 30, God told Judah through Jeremiah that he was going to do that very thing that Jeremiah had asked of him in chapter 10. God said, Jeremiah 30, verse 11, For I am with you, declares Yahweh, to save you. For I will destroy completely all the nations where I have scattered you, only I will not destroy you completely. But I will chasten you justly. Literally, I will chasten you according to justice and will by no means leave you unpunished. Again, in chapter 46, verse 28, God says, not just to Judah, but to Jacob, to all the tribes of Israel, O Jacob, my servant, do not fear, declares Yahweh, for I am with you. For I will make a full end of all the nations where I have driven you, yet I will not make a full end of you, but I will chasten you according to justice and will by no means leave you unpunished. It's the same thing that he said in chapter 30. This very clear and repeated declaration from God that he would certainly not leave his own people unpunished, but would judge them to correct them according to justice, was seen by Judah as a promise of a benign, relatively harmless kind of correction from God's hands. A correction that would look nothing like what he was going to do to the pagan nations that didn't even call upon the name of Yahweh. Now this is important because we tend to do the same thing. We convince ourselves that God's treatment of us who are his redeemed can't possibly be as harsh as his treatment of those who flatly reject him. If we're talking about what happens at the end of this earthly life, we're correct in that assessment. But if we're talking about what happens between now and our last breath in these mortal bodies, that assessment is very seriously wrong. God never characterizes his chastising judgment against his own covenant people as easier to take than his judgment against the nations. And that's something that, that you and I very much need to understand. Through the writer of this last chapter, God intends to make us very aware of the catastrophic cost of rebelling against God. And that's my title for this message, The Catastrophic Cost of Rebelling Against God. Most of the narrative in chapter 52 adds only a little to what we have already learned about the fall of Jerusalem in chapter 39. But when you get to verse 17, the writer starts giving us some detail that we don't find elsewhere in the book. There are three parts to verses 17 to 30 in this passage that I call the pilfered, the executed, and the exiled. The pilfered, the executed, and the exile. exiled. First, the pilfered. The writer goes into considerable detail about what happened to the many parts and pieces of the temple of Yahweh in Jerusalem. He explains that every part of the house of God was carried away into Babylon by the invading army. Everything from the huge 
bronze pillars that supported the structure of the temple, to the pots and pans and knives and forks that were used in the temple ceremonies. All of those valuable objects were taken away. The Babylonians cut the bigger objects like the huge bronze pillars into pieces so that they could carry them all the way to Babylon. And once they got all of these objects back to Babylon, you can be sure they did not put them in a museum. <laughs> they melted the gold and silver and bronze and they used it to build their own temples and altars and shrines to their false gods and to create valuable things for their own prominent people. The point of all this detail that the writer gives us here must not be missed. These words were written to the same Judahites who had insisted that this city could never fall because inside its walls was the temple of Yahweh. But in Jeremiah chapter 7, Yahweh, the Lord of armies, had said to them, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words, saying, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. That had been their mantra. The fortified walls of the, of the great city, along with the temple, the dwelling place of God in their midst, had been the props upon which their confidence of security had, had been based. But now, those great walls had been reduced to rubble. And every last piece of Solomon's glorious temple had either been turned to ash or carried away to a foreign land as the spoils of somebody else's victory. Okay, so that's the pilfered. <laughs> Next is the executed. The writer goes on to give us detail about the people who were summarily slain by Nebuzaradan, the captain of Nebuchadnezzar's elite personal guard, soon after the walls of the city came down. All of those who had enjoyed prominence in Jerusalem, the nobles, the princes, the officers, and the priests were gathered up, and they, they were brought before King Nebuchadnezzar where they were struck down by the edge of the sword and put to death. There was zero security for the people of God in their earthly status or earthly wealth. The pilfered and the executed and now finally the exiled. The exiles took a number of years during Nebuchadnezzar's rule. Uh, they started almost immediately after he became king in 605 BC, and they continued until the fall of the city of Jerusalem. So the writer gives us the, the, the head counts for the, ex, the different phases of the exile. And the total number that Nebuchadnezzar took away to Babylon was 4,600 people. No, that's not very many people. And the number here is smaller than in the parallel passage in 2 Kings, so most Bible-believing commentators believe that, that this passage is counting only the adult 
males. Uh, and that happens a lot in the Bible, really in both Testaments. In the Gospels, the event that we know as the feeding of the 5,000 was actually the feeding of about 20,000. But the text tells us that only the men, the adult men, were counted in the number 5,000. It is in this tally of those exiled to Babylon at the end of the last chapter of Jeremiah that we come face to face with the vastness of the number of Judahites who were slain by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence, just as God had forewarned through his prophets over and over and over again for generations. When God brought the Israelites out of Egypt, the adult males of fighting age had numbered 603,550. We see that number in Exodus chapter 38 and in Numbers chapter 1. That was just the adult males. So the population, including women and children and aged men, had to be at least 2 million. At the peak of Israel's prominence, during the reign of David, and Solomon, it had been a nation of many millions. But those three slayers, the sword, famine, and pestilence, had been no respecters of persons in the hands of God. Those who had been greatly honored by men and those who had been despised of men had fallen to those slayers, along with everyone in between. And the number of the slain was staggering. All that was left for Nebuchadnezzar to carry into exile was 4,600 men and their families. Now, the Old Testament book that comes right after Jeremiah in your Bibles is the much shorter book of Lamentations. It received that name because it is Jeremiah's impassioned and deeply personal lament in the aftermath of the very event that's laid out in this last chapter of Jeremiah the terrible siege and destruction of Jerusalem. These are the first five verses of the book of Lamentations. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. She has become like a widow who was once great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a forced laborer. Judah has gone into exile under affliction and under harsh servitude. She dwells among the nations, but she has found no rest. All her pursuers have overtaken her in the midst of distress. The roads of Zion are in mourning because no one comes to the appointed feasts. All her gates are desolate. Her priests are groaning. Her virgins are afflicted, and she herself is bitter. Her adversaries have become her masters, her enemies prosper. Why? For Yahweh has caused her grief because of the multitude of her transgressions. Remember the why part. For Yahweh has caused her grief because of the multitude of her transgressions. Now for how long had God been warning his people, of this judgment? Well, the answer is for nearly a millennium. 
Jerusalem fell to the Babylonian invasion around 587 BC. But long before that, around 1400 BC, as the Israelites were preparing to enter the land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for the first time, God prophesied a terrible judgment that would one day come upon the cities in that promised land. I'll warn you in advance that you probably don't want your young children to hear what is in the passages I'm about to read from Deuteronomy, Jeremiah, and Lamentations. So this would be the time to, to pause this video if you need to make an adjustment in who is able to hear it. <laughs> the details of this judgment are very hard to listen to. But I make no apologies at all for, for reading these passages in the hearing of any adult. This is the word of God to his people. He had Moses and Jeremiah write these words down so that we would know them. And we need to know them so that we will rightly assess how terrible is our rebellion against our redeeming God. But this is very important, beloved. The judgment that befell the city of Jerusalem is infinitely less terrifying than the judgment that is still coming from the hand of God upon those whose hearts never turn to Him. So if it's hard for us to listen to these passages, we need to know that this is child's play compared with the full measure of God's anger against the high-handed sin of His image-bearers. And I'm going to read from Deuteronomy chapter 28 first. These words were given by God through Moses to the Israelites after He had delivered them from 400 years of harsh slavery in Egypt and had faithfully led them through the wilderness for 40 years. And I should point out that this passage simply adds detail to a very similar warning of judgment that God delivered back in Leviticus 26 before the 40 years of wilderness wanderings. Deuteronomy 28.15 says, But it shall come about if you do not obey Yahweh your God to observe to do all His commandments and His statutes with which I charge you today, that all these curses will overcome you, uh, will come upon you and overtake you. That's verse 15. And then there are 34 verses of detailed curses. And then we come to verse 49. And I want you to listen to how many times God mentions the siege that's going to come upon Israel's cities and to what that siege will cause to happen inside the walls of their cities. Verse 49, Yahweh will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as the eagle swoops down, a nation whose language you shall not understand, a nation of fierce countenance who will have no respect for the old nor show favor to the young. Moreover, it, that nation, shall eat the offspring of your herd and the produce of your ground until you are destroyed. It will leave you no grain, new wine, or oil, nor the increase of your herd or the young of your flock, 
until they have caused you to perish. It shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout your land. And it shall besiege you in all your towns throughout your land which the Lord your God has given you. Twice in that one verse, God talks about the cities being besieged and brought down. And then verse 53, then you, listen to this, then you shall eat the offspring of your own body, the flesh of your sons and of your daughters whom Yahweh your God has given you during the siege and the distress by which your enemy will oppress you. The man who is refined and very delicate among you shall be hostile toward his brother and toward the wife he cherishes and toward the rest of his children who remain so that he will not give even one of them any of the flesh of his children which he shall eat since he has nothing else during the siege and the distress by which your enemy will oppress you in all your towns. The refined and delicate woman among you who would not venture to set the sole of her foot on the ground for delicateness and refinement shall be hostile toward the husband she cherishes and toward her son and daughter and toward her afterbirth which issues from between her legs and toward her children whom she bears for she will eat them secretly for lack of anything else. During the siege and the distress by which your enemy will oppress you in your towns. Five times in those verses, God speaks through Moses of the siege of Israel's fortified cities before any of those cities existed. And the greatest of those cities would be Jerusalem. God began warning his people of this judgment almost 900 years before the judgment happened. That would be as if he had been warning you and me of something over and over since 1100 A.D. The horrific detailed description of the cannibalism that occurred within houses inside the high and fortified walls of Israel's cities during that siege turned out to be a vivid foretelling of exactly what happened in Jeremiah's day, especially in the city that Judah considered to be most secure of all, Jerusalem. Very soon after that millennium-old prophecy came true exactly as God said it would, Jeremiah wrote these words in the book of Lamentations, chapter 4, starting at verse 9. Better are those slain with the sword than those slain with hunger. For they pine away, being stricken for lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women boiled their own children. They became food for them because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Yahweh has accomplished his wrath. He has poured out his fierce anger, and he has kindled a fire in Zion which has consumed its foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor did any of the inhabitants of the world, that the adversary and the enemy could enter the gates 
of Jerusalem. That last verse says that nobody believed that this would ever happen, even though God had been saying that this exact judgment would happen for nearly a thousand years. In Ezekiel chapter 5, verse, starting at verse 8, God says that this judgment was unlike any other that he would ever execute in his creation, either before this or after this. Verse 8 says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, even I, am against you, and I will execute judgments among you in the sight of the nations. And because of all your abominations, I will do among you what I have not done, and the like of which I will never do again. Therefore, fathers will eat their sons among you, and sons will eat their fathers. For I will execute judgments on you and scatter all your remnant to every wind. This judgment that God said was unlike any that he had done or ever would do again is the very same judgment that he prophesied in Deuteronomy. What was different about this judgment compared with God's earthly judgments against the pagan nations was not that it was less severe. Let me say that again. What was different about this judgment compared with God's earthly judgments against the pagan nations was not that it was less severe. In fact, what was different about this judgment is that it was more severe. God's judgment against his own covenant people whom he called his treasure, his inheritance, was not less painful than his judgment against the unbelieving nations. It was more painful. But beloved, this was not an eternal judgment. This was not an eternal judgment. This was an earthly judgment executed against a people, not a person, and the explicitly revealed purpose of God in executing this terrifying judgment was to correct and to restore His people, not to destroy them. It was to turn the hearts of His wayward people back to Himself. We've seen this purpose of God in judging His people and in judging those who would become his people over and over again in this very book, just as we see it from cover to cover in God's incomparable word. We have a tendency to think that being part of the covenant community of God means that his judgments against us will necessarily be much easier to bear than his judgments against the unbelieving world. But friends, during the short time of our lives here on earth, the experience of God's fierce hatred of sin that is directed against his people is more relentless and more severe than any judgment that he directs against those who are not and will not become his people. And that shouldn't surprise us. When you were a kid, when you were a kid, which kids in your neighborhood got to experience the fullest measure 
of your parents' displeasure when they did bad things. My guess is that it was the kids who called your parents mom and dad, right? So what's the point of all this? The point is that our sin, the sin of God's, God's own covenant people, is an abomination to God. Our sin is an abomination to God. And if that's not how we assess our sin, God will not stop working to make that assessment ours. We can count on that. If you and I had personally lived through all that Jeremiah and Baruch had witnessed firsthand, we would very likely have a much better understanding of God's holy hatred of, of our sin than most Christians living today do. We, and I include myself in this indictment, have a grievously misguided tendency to treat God and even to speak of God as if his response to our sinful rebellion against him is nothing to get very worried about. Because we're his kids, and he's such a loving God. So we, we keep indulging long-standing sins, counting on the fact that God's grace will keep us from ever having to feel the, the full weight of God's anger that we rightly deserve. And, and we're correct in believing that we'll never feel the full weight of God's holy hatred of our sin, <laughs> thanks to Christ. But beloved, we fall into terrible error if we think that God's grace toward us in Jesus Christ in any way reduced his hatred of our sin. God will never adjust or reduce his hatred of man's rebellion against him. And when that rebellion comes from his own redeemed and beloved children, it is all the more abominable to God. In Amos chapter 3, verse 2, God said to Israel, You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Being the people of God didn't exempt Israel from his judgment. It guaranteed his judgment. The everlasting penalty that you and I deserve was not reduced by Christ on the cross. It was not mitigated or adjusted by the sacrifice of Christ. The penalty that was poured out on Christ was poured out in full, infinite measure upon the perfect, sinless Son of God in our place. Our eternal sin debt to God was wiped out once and for all at the most precious and costly price ever paid in all of God's creation. And that cost was the lifeblood of Jesus Christ. It is a grievous failure of gratitude if we allow ourselves to think that that indescribable gift has in any way changed God's hatred of our sin. 
it is by that gift that we, get to, that we come to know the magnitude of God's hatred of our sin. It's not any corrective judgment during our earthly lives that enables us to rightly assess those three things I talked about at the beginning. Who God is, what we deserve from Him, and the magnitude of His grace toward us. It is only the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the fiercest judgment that will ever come from the hand of our holy God upon anyone. The cross proves the holiness of God, the wretchedness of our sin, and the magnitude of God's grace toward us in Christ. If you want to know how much God hates your sin and mine, don't look to Jerusalem, beloved. That was an earthly, temporary judgment. It was a mere picture of the eternal judgment that we all deserve. That judgment came upon Judah because of their failure of grateful obedience for an gratitude for an earthly, temporary redemption, which is a mere picture of the full eternal redemption that you and I have been given in Christ. Those were pictures. To rightly assess how much God hates your sin and mine, don't look to Jerusalem. Look to the cross of Christ. Anyone who dies with that wrath still directed against himself instead of against Christ will never see the end of it. Hell is forever. Why? Because the rebellious and infinite the, the rebellious and finite creature can never repay in full the honor that he has stolen from the holy and infinite creator. That's why hell is forever, because that payment is never finished. The only way that we will rightly assess the terrible magnitude of our offense against God will be for us to rightly value the unspeakable cost that Jesus paid to wipe out that offense. You and I cannot just muster up from within ourselves a holy hatred of our own sin. It doesn't work like that. Our hatred of sin will grow and will gain control in our hearts and in our lives only as we come to rightly assess what it took for our sin to be forgiven. That's what Peter is talking about in the verses I'm going to end with from 1 Peter chapter 1. I'll start at verse 10 and I ask you to listen and listen carefully. As to this salvation, and he's talking about the salvation that gives us our living hope, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. 
it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. And these things which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And then I'm going to ask you to really, really listen to this last part. Verses 17 to 21. This, this is, it's life-defining. Listen to this. If you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that, knowing that, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but you were redeemed with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. Get real familiar with that passage. If there is something that God would have me fear in myself, it is this. It is that I would undervalue the preciousness of the price that he paid to release me from the debt that I owed to him. That price was the blood of Jesus. Pray with me. Holy Heavenly Father, Thank you for your continual work in our hearts to fix our terrible accounting by turning our eyes back to Jesus, our holy, sinless Savior, who bore the wrath that we fully deserve so that, that we have been made forever clean in your sight, covered by his righteousness forever. Teach us to rightly value him, dear Father. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.